women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, Princeton University's podcast about the moving and shaking women who come through this campus and the changes they're making in their worlds. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and today I've lured into our studio Sadaf Jaffer. Sadaf is a postdoc here on campus at the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies, but perhaps more importantly, she's also the very first South Asian woman to be a mayor in the state of New Jersey. Uh, she was just appointed mayor of Montgomery Township, to be precise, so congratulations, Sadaf. Thank you so much. Um, Sadaf is also a first-generation American citizen. She was born in my hometown of Chicago, where her parents came after uh, moving in from Pakistan. Sadaf, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you this. How did a nice girl like you get into politics? I mean, as I understand it, you you, you did your BA at at, uh, Georgetown, PhD at Harvard, and uh, postdoc at Stanford, then Princeton. Uh, What pushed you into politics or pulled you into politics? Well, I always had an interest in public service. And uh, growing up, one of my funny memories is that my dad used to hold mock presidential debates between my younger brother and I on the car rides. (laughs) I was older, so I always kind of, he would say it was a tie, but I would kind of beat him into saying, well, you did do well. Um, But that interest in public service was always there. The interest in politics, um, I grew up in an NPR listening household. Uh Um, So that kind of was in the air around me. Um, And I would say that my public school education in Chicago also instilled an interest in public service and and the importance that different movements have made to improve our lives. So, you know, growing up, we learned a lot about the labor movement and mm-hmm. and kind of the abuses in labor that took place in Chicago and how that changed. Sure, over Chicago time. has a really interesting history of labor law yes. and labor conflict, yes. actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, and so when I ended up deciding where to co- go to college, I decided to go to Georgetown. I was in the School of Foreign Service, and I thought I wanted to become a diplomat. Mm-hmm. And I actually interned at the State Department and with the Marine Corps when I was in college, but I also became very interested in my academic studies about Muslim societies and decided to pursue a PhD in that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think work in the public interest takes so many different varieties. And so I thought, okay, my variety is that I'm going to be an educator, I'm going to do research, and um, I'm going to teach students about history and literature and cultures that they might not be ex- exposed to. But I always kept my interest in advocism, uh, ad- advocacy and activism. And Although uh, advocism is a good word that yes, we should probably actually, maybe bring into that's the a, dictionary. That's a word I should, uh, I should uh, <laughs> coin that. Um, but I realized that if you're a- advocating to people who will never change their minds, you mm-hmm. kind of hit a barrier. And so I started thinking again about public service, but this time potentially in elected office. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this to some friends of mine. And one of them who was from California asked me about the Emerge program. And that's for women from the Democratic Party who are interested in running for office. So I just decided to Google it, and they were starting up in New Jersey. Um, And I, this was in, I applied in 2013. I completed the program in 2014. And I received a lot of the same reaction from people. You're in academia. That's a very respected field. Why are you looking into (laughs) politics? And I think that doing the Emerge program was wonderful because I met women who I really respect and Mm -hmm. I could see that they just wanted to serve their communities. And I would argue that cynicism actually makes it much more likely to have more 
bad actors or people who are in politics for the wrong reason mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember how many people have fought to give us the rights and the abilities to participate in our political process the way that we can. And we shouldn't take that for granted. Uh, so I do think that we need to reclaim the political sphere. If we really think that it's dominated by people who aren't so great or don't have great intentions, then we ought to you know, step up and, and do our part to change that. Yeah. So the Emerge program, mm-hmm. first off, I assume it is still running. Yes. And what, what did you learn? How, how was it organized? It was a six-month training program. We met on weekends, and I was actually pregnant with my daughter at the time, so it became more difficult as time went on. Uh, But it consisted of seminars and workshops and exercises, developing our story, understanding how how we connect to people. And also, I'm going to be conducting a training uh, session for the current class about the political structure of the Democratic Party in New Jersey. And that was something that I just really didn't understand. I was keyed into national and international issues, but I didn't know how to connect to the local. And again, I think this is something that I believe academics and anyone who has an interest in the passion should think about how to get involved at the local level because so many important things happen there and you know our perspectives our skills are really needed at that level that's that's uh as you say, that isn't necessarily the 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 stratum that most academics are thinking about. So I, I, I take that point really strongly. Um, when you first ran for office, uh, and and maybe even in the Emerge program itself, mm-hmm. was your Pakistani background or your South Asian background was that a factor? Was that something you thought about? How right. did that play out in the electoral process here? Well, when I got involved in Emerge, I I was the only South Asian woman in the class and. Someone there connected me with a newly formed South Asian American Caucus of the Democratic State Committee in New Jersey. And through them, I met some of the South Asian Americans who were involved locally and at the county level, at the state level. And um, we started doing more organizing, trying to get our community to register to vote, to vote, to think about political office. And actually, in those conversations, I... uh, worked together with a group of women to start a group called ISA, Inspiring South Asian American Women. Mm -hmm. And it's specifically to get more women from our community involved in politics in New Jersey. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things is that I was actually registered to vote by a South Asian advocacy group. When I moved to New Jersey, my husband and I went to this Indian American fair, Uh and there was a group called SALT, South Asian Americans Leading Together, Mm -hmm. and they were doing voter registrations. And we hadn't registered yet. We had just moved, like, a couple of weeks before. Uh, so that the importance of those advocacy groups has really threaded its way throughout. In um, Montgomery, we actually have a 30% Asian American population, and a significant uh, segment of that population is South Asian American, but they haven't been politically engaged. And someone asked me, you know, what, considering how many Asian Americans we have in our town, why don't we see them more in political organizing? And I said, if you go to a space and you don't see anyone who looks like you, you might think that you don't belong there, that it's not the space for you. Yeah. And so in the beginning, I was often the only South Asian person there, the only Asian American person in the room. But that started to change. And after you know, I was uh, elected as mayor, someone reached out to me and said, oh, we have a, um, a Tamil holiday called Pongal coming up. Do you think you could do a proclamation honoring us? And we have this group called the Tamil Sangam of New Jersey. 
And someone said, oh, well, how come they never reached out before? And again, I said, they might feel more comfortable asking me because yeah. we have that shared history. And that's another example of why it's so important to have representation, because then you get those connections throughout the yeah. community. It was really interesting when I watched your swearing in, it was obvious you were being sworn in by a Sikh attorney general, which made me pause and think that this is there's really a rising tide of, of South Asian involvement in politics going on, isn't there? There's Kamala Harris, for example, uh, Nikki Haley, and, and, and many others. When I started getting involved in politics, I noticed that many of the people who were in elected office would say that, oh, my mom was a council person or my dad was a mayor or something. And that's probably less likely to be the case for someone from an immigrant background because their parents sure. were establishing themselves financially and that's just not as common. Um, so I think there's that network that isn't there, not knowing the process. And I think it just takes immigrant communities some time to settle into their space. But then there's also this peculiar history that no matter how long Asian Americans have been in this country, they they sometime, somehow maintain a sense or the popular idea about them is that they're constantly foreign, that there is that sense that at what point are you American? How many generations do you need to be there, be here? And Asian Americans struggle with that. Uh, but I was recently at an event with Andy Kim, the, fir the first Asian American uh, congressperson from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And there's an advocacy group being started called Jersey Promise, which mm -hmm. is specifically to look at the history of Asian Americans in New Jersey, what they can contribute, and how we can get their voices more at the table. I've spent a lot of time in, in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. and the South Asian community in the United Kingdom is, is obviously very large mm -hmm. and, and very present, mm -hmm. uh, as we said, less so here. But also, I, th I, I imagine that the Pakistani immigrants mm -hmm. to the United States do have a different uh, story, a different, right. different reason for being here a lot of the time. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pakistani community here sure. in the United States? Uh, well, I mean, the, the comparison is often made that the South Asian immigrants that, that have come to the United States in recent waves, like from the 70s, tended to be more professionals who came on professional visas, so doctors and things like that. Whereas, I mean, the UK has a completely different history because of its colonial connections to South Asia and um, that there might be more working class South Asians in the UK than in the US. But um, I, I didn't come from an academic background myself. I mean, I, I am an academic and my brother actually is also a PhD candidate, but <laughs> our parents weren't. Uh -huh, so okay. that's, I mean, I, I, I think that the story is different. There is a rapper and... Um, uh, a rapper named Riz MC, and he's also uh, known for starring in many different films and uh, was in a show called The Night Of, which he won an Emmy for. And I remember him saying that coming from the UK for, as a British Pakistani and seeing the Pakistanis in the US and how wealthy they were and how well-connected they were was a shock for him. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there is more diversity to the Asian community in the US than people acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And um, some of that has to do with the model minority myth yeah. and the way that South Asians were and Asian Americans were kind of pitted against um, Latinx and black communities yeah, yeah. as being the successful immigrants. And I think, you know, we we benefit from that stereotype about our community, but also then other experiences, other Asian American stories are hidden. So yeah. I think we we all it all it serves us to kind of think about the diversity of the Asian American experience. Yeah, well. you're 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 um, 
replicating what Helen Zia said on mm -hmm. an earlier podcast mm -hmm. uh, about the uh, uh, model minority myth right. that she's lived under, too. Um, there's another demographic rarity that you mm -hmm. embody, and that's uh, uh, Muslim, mm -hmm. Islam. Right. Um, you grew up in a, in a Muslim family, mm -hmm. and the country since 9-11, probably since before 9-11, mm -hmm. but certainly um, it's been very, we've seen uh, Islamophobia on the mm -hmm. rise, we've seen hate crimes on the rise, mm -hmm. though I'm, I'm hearing some positive hints there that maybe right. that's kind of leveling off, at right. least for the South Asian community. Anyway, I'm wondering if you if you have experienced that uh, in your either professional or political life mm -hmm. and uh, whether you see that changing a little bit. Right. Well, I mean, I think Islam and Muslims have been kind of the boogeyman in uh, American popular media for a while. And even growing up, my parents weren't <clears throat> too keen to have me discuss our religious identity. They would kind of be like, ah, just say, yeah, you're Muslim, but don't go into details about it. <laughs> um, but I think um, certainly after 9-11, things became more kind of harsh. And uh, I was a freshman in college. It was actually just the beginning of my freshman year of college when uh, the September 11th attacks happened. And I remember just being so hurt and traumatized as an American, seeing all the destruction and the death. Um, and, you know, I think that was part of the catalyst during my undergraduate years to try to understand Muslim societies better and seeing the diversity, seeing the types of literature and art that was produced and realizing that both Muslim extremists and anti-Muslim activists had very narrow views of Islam that weren't really representative of the history of the tradition. And that's why I think I decided to pursue that academic line of study because mm -hmm. I wanted to bridge that gap. But what I've seen is though academic study of Islam might be very well informed, mm -hmm. popular understandings have not matched up with that. And <clears throat> and I would hope that seeing Muslim women representing their communities, but also their individuality, yeah. will help dispel that kind of monolithic understanding of Muslims and what they are and what they believe. Um, and again, I, I think... I hope that more people from Muslim backgrounds will get involved in local uh, local service and uh, local uh, elected politics. Yeah. Well, you prompt a question I was going to ask anyway. 2018 was a great year for Muslim women. Right. Great year by at least two. Anyway, right. we've got two uh, Muslim women in mm -hmm. Congress that weren't mm -hmm. there before, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Um, I, it makes me wonder two things. Um, what's going on with, with, with Muslim women? Mm -hmm. Are we seeing the rise of the Muslim woman? And right. also, I guess my question is, is this a really, is there something uniquely um, valuable in having Muslim women mm -hmm. uh, in politics in yes. the United States? Yeah, please right. jump well, on that. Well, I would say certainly as someone who is, you know, a feminist scholar and has dedicated myself to women's advocacy, it's important to have, you know, men from minority community in spaces, but they can't represent women's perspectives. And that, I mean, as a whole, we don't have enough representation of women in politics. Yeah. So that any woman is a good <laughs> addition to our political sphere and then minority women as well. And that's why, as I said, we started this group for South Asian American women called ISA because – you know, there had been men from our communities who were in elected office, but we really wanted the women to get their to get their say, to be able to represent themselves and to do it in a way that was authentic to them. And um, 
I, I'm very happy to see more representation and hopefully even more numbers as, as we move forward. There doesn't seem to be any reason to think it would slow down, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it does seem to be sure. something that's definitely growing, right. so encouraging for everybody. Um, I guess the other thing, and this is the last, if you have you know, political mm-hmm. strikes, this is the third strike, you're out kind of strike, uh-huh. and that is you're an academic. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how does being an academic play in the political sphere? Right. I mean, I think at one point there were almost zero PhDs in mm-hmm. Congress. Now I think there's 10 or mm-hmm. 20, something like that. But is, is, is this a positive or a negative, or does anybody care at all? Well, um, I would say that there is a strain of anti-intellectualism in the U.S. that we're certainly certainly seeing. And to counter that, people from academic backgrounds need to, again, be at the decision-making table. So scientific consensus can't be rejected. Or, you know, for myself, I can say that, you know, in my first year on the Township Committee, there was an anti-Muslim bias crime. And I could bring in my academic background to say, listen— you know, pork is used to target Muslims. Islamophobia is a form of racism and inform people from my academic background. And Andrew Zwicker has been a great role model for me in that in that way when I was thinking about it, because there aren't so many people who were in academia and have gone into politics. I'm going to jump in and ask you to explain who Andrew Zwicker is. I, I okay. actually do know him. Yes. So <laughs> he's, he's a state assemblyman and mm-hmm. he's uh, the state assemblyman from my district. And he's also at the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory. Mm-hmm. So when I was first thinking about this, I met with him to discuss it because you know, I wanted women role models who were women, role models who were South Asian, and role models who came from academic backgrounds to see what their path was. And I, I think talking about how we want to make decisions based on research, we want to make decisions based on uh, building knowledge from experts is something that speaks to people definitely in Montgomery. They want to see uh, qualified professionals making decisions. Um, and I think that academics have gained so much from society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like we've had the privilege of an education that many people haven't. So we owe it to our communities to try to give back. Yeah, no, I, I think that you couldn't say that more strongly. But there are lots and lots of issues, I think, that academics, you're right, mm-hmm. need to be in the political sphere to address. I think for, for, for all too long, people have been comfortable, or at least the, the mm-hmm. myth is that academics have been comfortable being in the ivory tower where right. they're not somehow either corrupted by mm-hmm. by politics or touched by politics. Sure. That's, that's essentially impossible these days, yeah? Right. I mean, I think we pride ourselves on critique, but... <clears throat> Sorry, if we're breaking things down, we have to be able to build things up in their place. Yeah, uh, and this is something that I think feminist scholarship has always had a sense of engaged scholarship and the need to be uh, an act- activist and an advocate. Uh, but and I think for me, public service and serving an elected and an elected role is the natural progression of that. That we mm-hmm. also need people who are informed by these uh, discourses and this education to be an elected office to not only uh, advocate for things, but to be the decision makers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that does move right into, we haven't broached the topic of your actual research, your Mm -hmm. academic research. A little bit, touched on a little bit, but I'm just curious, are there other ways in which your your scholarship, Mm -hmm. what you you study, your expertise is is feeding into your political career? Well, my research is on uh, secular and feminist thought in Muslim South Asia. Mm -hmm. And the writer who I'm currently working on a book on, Isma Chuktai, was a feminist uh, activist. She wrote novels and short stories, and but she also had a lot to say about politics. And 
I think that we don't pay enough attention to Muslim women as thinkers and as people who contribute to their society beyond something to study ourselves. And so I want to bring her ideas to the fore. Uh, and, um, you know, the next project that I want to work on is on uh, Pakistani women's advocacy and activism for women's rights. Mm -hmm. And so I constantly see that connection between theory, you know, feminist theory, uh, History, historical studies and the Im impact they can have on communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think that I'm trying to do the same thing in, in where I am, mm -hmm. that I can teach these things, I can conduct re research on them in the uh, university space, but then also work with my local communities to share that, to bridge that gap. As a postdoc, uh, you are here for two years, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, and then your mayorship will be over by mm -hmm. then. Do you see um, another step, another political move for you? For me, it's most important that there are people who represent my values in elected office. So if I felt that that wasn't the case and I had community support of people saying that they wanted me to run for another office, I would consider it at that time. But uh, I am very committed to my academic studies. And one of the great things about local office that people might not realize is that it is generally part time, and most people do have their other their main careers. Um, so this is something that I've been able to do and balance both, and um, it's 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 something that I need to figure out as I go forward. But I do think that academia is still my primary passion. All right. Well, we're glad <laughs> here at Princeton. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. I also want to say thanks to Dan Kearns, who's our audio engineer, and to Danielle Alio, who's our producer, and to the listeners for listening. And I hope they'll come back, you'll come back, for some more interviews with some of the fascinating, change-making women from Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.